previously on Crime Shots. How would you classify this series of crimes? Lime had been poured over the victims to help decompose the bodies. Today we're going to be talking about Dean Coral, the candy man. So the, the family moved to the Houston Heights. His mom had started a company, a candy company named Pecan Prince. He would hand out candy regularly to the neighborhood kids. Dean becomes friends with 12-year-old David Owen Brooks. Dean had started sexually abusing him from the age of 12. September 25th, the first victim, Jeffrey Conan, murdered and buried on High Island Beach. Brooks walks in on Coral sexually assaulting two teen boys who are tied to the bed. Nobody ever found them. Nobody knows who they were. Nobody knows anything about that. Brooks brings home James Glass and Danny Yates, both 14 years old. And this is the first mention of the torture board. And they were buried in a boat shed. Donald and Jerry Waldrop. And then buried in the boat shed. Randall Lee Harvey was last seen riding his bike. David Hillegeist, 13 years old, and Gregory Malley, 16 years old, buried in the boat shed. So Elmer Wayne Henley, 15 years old, did two more murders at that apartment with his help. Reuben Watson Haney, buried in the boat shed. Identity of two victims as well were never revealed. Frank Aguirre, he was murdered and he was buried at, at High Island Beach. Mark Scott, buried at High Island Beach. Billy Balch and Johnny DeLome, buried at High Island Beach. Billy Riddinger, 19 years old, he was released. 17-year-old Stephen Sickman, buried in the boat shed. Roy Eugene Bunton was 19 years old, buried in the boat shed. Wally J. Simino and Richard Hembry. Wally Simino called his mom, and he only gets the word mama out before the calls ended. Buried him in the boat shed. 18-year-old Willard Branch. Buried in the boat shed with his genitals removed. 19-year-old Richard Kepner. Buried at High Island Beach. Joseph Lyles. Buried in the boat shed. Wayne Henley and David Brooks described it as kind of like a bloodlust. 15-year-old William Ray Lawrence, buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. Homer Luis Garcia, he's 15 years old, buried oh at God. Lake Sam Rayburn. 17-year-old John Sellers, buried at High Island. So there's probably more than just boys hanging out at these parties. I, I would assume they had to be, but at the same time, there's something later that kind of says maybe not. So that'll be something we get into next episode.
Welcome to Crime Shots. I'm Bree. I'm Joe. So Brooks marries his pregnant fiance and stops abducting boys in general. So Henley helps Dean Coral with three more victims after Brooks left. And he claimed these three were the only ones that he helped with that didn't involve David Brooks. So on July 19th, 15-year-old Michael Balch. Now keep in mind, Billy Balch was murdered earlier. So this is Billy Balch's brother. So this is how many sets of brothers have we even talked about? There's Michael and Billy Balch. There were the... Oh, Donald and Jerry Jerry Waldrop. I guess there's two sets of brothers at this point. So Donald and Jerry Waldrop and Michael and Billy Balch. Michael Balch was last seen getting a haircut or going to get a haircut uh, by his parents. There was kind of a. It's kind of it's hard to know how much of this type of story is something that they made up for filler for the story or something that actually happened. But according to certain sources, Michael Balch had been letting his hair grow out and his dad told him he needed to go get a haircut. So he just left, walked out of the house. Well, his mom said that he was actually just leaving, like he was moving out because he didn't want to get a haircut. Other sources were saying he was going to get a haircut. I kind of believe the fact that in this scenario, I doubt this 15-year-old kid was going to hear, go get your haircut, and then he just goes and gets his haircut. It seems a little more likely that he was, he decided he didn't want to live with his parents anymore because they wanted him to have short hair. So he just left. I would say that uh, that's pretty extreme over a haircut, but uh, I'm I think that my son would be like that. Well, that source also said that this wasn't the first time he had left. Okay. And this so... is something that was kind of a recurring theme with a lot of these kids in this neighborhood as well. Like we went back earlier, that was kind of a recurring thing that these kids would just kind of leave and come back whenever they wanted to. Not all of them. Don't get me wrong. Not all of them. There were a lot that didn't, but there were also a lot that did. So it was not uncommon for them to just leave and go get a summer job somewhere and then come back three months later when school started. So I know that sounds weird in today's world, but back then in that neighborhood, in that area, that was not the most uncommon thing out there. So again, last seen either going to get a haircut or running away from home so he didn't have to get a haircut regardless of the scenario, uh, he was strangled and buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. July 25th, so six days later, 17-year-old Charles Cobble and 18-year-old Marty Ray Jones, they disappeared. Their parents thought that they ran away from home, right? Charles Cobble lived with his parents. Marty Ray Jones had moved in with Charles. And he was kind of a bad influence. So when Marty Ray and Charles Cobble disappeared, the parents just assumed that they had decided to go move in somewhere else, just just move out and go do their own thing. 
at some point, Charles Cobble called his father, and he was frantic, saying that he had been abducted by drug dealers and that they needed to come up with some money. And then the phone hung up, and kind of we kind of know the rest, right? So they were both strangled, both buried by Wayne Henley in the boat shed. Again, with the boat shed. In the boat shed. I guess now we could say the same thing about Lake Sam Rayburn, though. Yep. Well, Lake Sam, Lake Sam Rayburn, High Island Beach, and the boat shed. Yeah. That was... So, that it's was funny because spot. at the beginning when you said Lake Sam Rayburn, I was like, oh my god, some crazy stuff happened there, you gotta look it up. Well, it might, it might just be him. It might be. <laughs> it's very possible that it could have just all been him. I mean, because we don't know. We don't know. Yeah. So August 3rd, we're talking, what, nine days later? Something like that. Uh, 1973. 13-year-old James Stanton Dramala. They said he was a small blonde boy. And apparently, David Brooks buys him a pizza and brings him over to the apartment. And they hang out for about 45 minutes before they attack him. And he's strangled and buried in the boat shed. He had he was last seen riding his bike in Pasadena, and he had called his parents to tell them that he was at a party across town and not to worry. And that kind of became a theme, too, that apparently there were and I didn't really talk about. Too much of that, but there were a lot of letters written to family members. That. Dean Coral had either written himself or made them write to kind of put the parents off of the trail, tell them, oh, one of the kids uh, said that he had gotten a job in Austin and not to worry, he'd be back when the summer was over. Things like that, that there was a lot of, like the phone call thing, that was to throw them off that trail. So he's obviously conscious that what he's doing yes. could oh, put him away. Absolutely. Right. And he's doing everything he can to kind of throw him off the trail, which I mean, if you think of, if you think about the Charles Cobble situation, he had Charles call his dad and tell him that they were abducted by drug dealers and that they wanted to come up with some money. There was no money involved. They didn't want any money, but that was the story they were telling those kids in order to throw the parents off. Right now they're looking for a drug dealer somewhere. I mean, that's a whole nother trail that can just go off in the weeds. By the way, a, a lot of this is kind of explained in more detail in, in a book called The Man with the Candy. It's, again, it's explained in more detail, but the question really is, how much of it does the guy that wrote this know, and how much of it did he kind of use to just embellish the story so he could write a book? I'm not saying anything negative about him at all. I'm just saying we don't know how much of this is real, actual facts and how much of it was just kind of a something that he, you know, needed to be put in for filler. But moving on. So on the evening of August 7th, 1973, uh, 17-year-old Wayne Henley brought Timothy Cordell Curley to Coral's house along with a girl named Rhonda Williams. Rhonda was described as petite with uh, chestnut hair midway down her back. 
She was 15 years old, and she was described as gamine. Gamine. You know what that is? No, are you saying it right? G-A-M-I-N-E. Gamine. Gamine. It's like playful. I don't know. It's like, it's kind of a weird description. I don't know why. Is a slim, often boyish, elegant young woman who is or is perceived to be mischievous, teasing, or sexually appealing. It's a French word. Oh, so gamine. Gamine. I don't know. Here. What? Gamine. That's what Google says, how to pronounce it. Gamine. That's right. I've got Google pronounce. Hell yeah. Gamine. So, Gamine. Yeah. So, kind of weird fact. Um, she had a limp because she was helping uh, one of the boys. I can't remember. Either David Brooks or Wayne. It doesn't really matter. But she was helping them push a car. So, she was sitting on the hood of... Let's just say it was it was Dean. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Wayne. Let's just say it was Wayne. She was sitting on Wayne's hood while he was pushing someone else's car. And he told her, be careful. Don't get your feet caught between the cars. And she got her foot caught between the cars. So it crushed her foot. It was broken in several places. And she had a limp from then on. Kind of a weird, That's weird, weird factoid. She was actually dating Frank Aguirre mm-hmm. when he disappeared. Mm. Another weird thing was she actually said that when the day Frank disappeared, she saw him and he was, and I guess this kind of speaks a little bit more towards the kind of the, the way these kids were, that she saw him being basically carried like, you know, two guys one on each arm kind of almost dragging carrying him to the van to Dean's van and she it hurt her feelings that she said hey frank and he like looked at her with this look and she said he didn't know if the she didn't she didn't realize till later but she thought the look was like a look of disgust but it was she thinks now it was more a look like help me but he was so high or so incapacitated that he couldn't say it. Does that make sense? At that time, he probably didn't even know what was what was going to happen to him. So he may not have had that help me look. It may have truly been disgust. And she's just trying to make herself feel better. But Hey, we don't know. But that was the last time he was seen. And he was being kind of drugged to the van. Yeah. So in a sense, it's very, very possible that it he had is. gotten into some type of altercation and he had gotten knocked silly and yeah. couldn't defend himself anymore. And right. she was literally the last person to see him alive other than those three. But again, kind of a weird... we go with the whole people not saying shit. Yeah. And they said she never got over Frank. Oh, um, that's kind of sad. Her mom... What? I said that's kind of sad. So, uh, when... When Rhonda was really young, like we're talking probably four or five years old, her mom put her and her sisters in the bathtub to take a bath, and she went outside to go hang clothes up on the clothesline and died of a heart attack in the backyard. Okay. So, yeah. So she basically grew up with just her dad, and they would often argue, I mean, as 
as kids will do. They would, they'd fight a lot. And it just so happened that on this night that we're talking about, she had had a serious argument with her dad that had gotten physical and she decided she was leaving. So she just left and she saw uh, Wayne when Wayne was about to head to Dean Coral's house. So she got in the car with Wayne. And at this point, Wayne had had a crush on Rhonda for a little while. I don't know that he ever mentioned it to her or if she had the same feelings for him. But regardless, that's why this that's why he ended up taking her along, right? He kind of felt bad for her. They got in a fight. She got in a fight with her dad. So he was like, hey, come with me. So we'll just go over here to a party. So they pick up Timothy Cordell Curley, pick up Rhonda Williams, and they head to Dean Coral's house. And when they walk in the house, Dean Coral loses it. And he tells Wayne, you ruined everything. So the three, so Timothy Cordell, Rhonda Williams, and Wayne Henley sat in the living room smoking weed, and they were sniffing paint, while Coral just kind of sat in the corner brooding. So you can kind of imagine he was mad, and he was just sitting in the corner with his arms crossed, watching these three get high. Sounds like he's mad because they brought a girl into the mix. Right. And that's why I was saying earlier, it was like, yeah, I, I would assume there were always, or there were girls around, but maybe, you know, it's probably, this was probably one of those nights that Dean had said, I want a new boy, right? And then Wayne brought a girl over. I don't know. It kind of, it kind of sounds to me like they never had any girls around. Not I, when Dean was there, at least. I don't think so, because there were other accounts where there were actual girls saying that, oh, he seemed really nice. He seemed. Yeah. You know what I mean? So they. Yeah. There are other accounts. I think this was one of those nights. But why would he say you've ruined everything? Well, maybe he had that bloodlust they were talking about. And he said, hey, bring me a new boy. And then when Wayne brings a boy over, he also brings a girl. You can kind of see how that would ruin everything. Right. That would kind of make. That comment makes sense. Yeah. But regardless, we're kind of getting in the weeds. So he's sitting in the corner, not happy, while they all sit in the living room getting high. They said they, they said after a few hours, all three of them passed out. And when Wayne woke up, uh, he woke up to Dean snapping handcuffs on his wrists. So no matter how much he pleaded with Dean, Dean kept saying he was going to kill all three of them. But first, he was going to, quote, have his fun. So he repeatedly kicked Rhonda Williams in the chest. (gasps) Then he grabbed Wayne and drug him to his feet in the kitchen. And he shoved a twenty-two pistol in his stomach. Oh, my God. And after a few minutes of pleading... Wayne finally convinced Dean to release him. He promised that he would help with the other two. Oh, wow. So after untying Wayne, he grabs Timothy Curley and ties him to the to the torture board. And Wayne ties up Rhonda on the other side of the board. So back to back. Coral tells Wayne that he would take care. Coral tells Wayne to take care of Rhonda. 
and that he would have his fun with Curly. Wayne, at this point, Wayne starts cutting off Rhonda's clothes and she wakes up. Now you can imagine, right? They've been huffing paint for hours. They're all high. They're still probably not all there. So Rhonda wakes up or starts to come to and she looks at Wayne and says, is this for real? Because she's, I don't think she can quite grasp where she is and what's really going on right now. And Wayne said, yes. And she said, are you going to do something about it? And this is where it all turns. So at this point in the entire story, Wayne decides to do something about it. And he grabs the pistol, points it at Dean Coral, and says, stop. Leave Timothy alone. Shut your damn mouth. He stood up to him? He did. Dean looks at him and says, you're not man enough to shoot me. And starts coming towards him. And they kind of go back and forth. And Wayne shoots Dean in the forehead. So the bullet doesn't go through the skull. It kind of, I don't know, it, it kind of glances off his head in a way. But they just oh, basically crap. said that didn't kill him. So Dang. Wayne almost unloads the pistol on him and ends up killing him. It's like it's like freaking <laughs> it's like a scary movie like Halloween. Right. Like he just right. won't die. Right. And now so although, you know, of course now here we are and this he actually did die. So now Dean Coral's laying dead, and there's actually a picture, and I guess we can post this on Facebook as well. But there is a crime scene picture showing Dean Coral and how he was facing when he was laying in the hallway. Send it to me in Discord. Well, I can look it up. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Oh, oh. I don't know if we can post that on Facebook. I think we can. I don't. I mean, he's naked. I mean, hey. We may have to star it. I don't know what starring it is. Like you just put a star over his booty crack. I don't think it's showing enough to matter. But regardless, whatever. We'll move on from I this. I mean, that's but... true. I mean, he's, there's blood all over the wall, so it's not like... Yeah. Is that a tattoo on his back? No, that's blood. Because he shot him in like five different spots. Good. I think that's blood. I would assume... I assumed it was blood. I don't know what else it could be. It's not a tattoo. I mean, yeah, I guess it could be blood. I don't know. So anyway, now you can imagine Wayne Henley standing there, Dean Coral dead, laying up against the wall. And now everybody's in a state of shock to a degree. So he goes and he unties Timothy and Rhonda. And remember how I said Rhonda probably wasn't all there, like she still was groggy? Yeah. So they they said that they said that once she got untied, she was laughing and she told Wayne something like, you know, stop being silly or something like that. Like like you're tickling me type of comment. And then she turned and she started walking out of the room and she tripped over Dean Coral's body and her hands landed in his pool of blood. 
So then she gets up, she starts walking outside and she's trying to figure out why she has ketchup on her hands. And then as soon as she gets outside, it dawns on her that that's blood. Dean's dead. And all this shit went down. So she starts freaking out. Everybody's trying to kind of console everybody. And Timothy basically convinces Wayne that he needed to call the police and tell them what happened. So Wayne did. Wayne called the cops and tells them everything. So I have a question. Mm -hmm. So obviously at the beginning of this, you were saying that he he shot Dean and killed him. And then they call 911, and then he starts telling them everything that happened. So obviously, the two accomplices end up sitting down and explaining to them everything that they know. Yes. So in the beginning, when it when they first start interviewing Wayne, yeah, he's he's kind of hesitant. He's telling things, but he's kind of just giving like half-assed stories about what happened, mm-hmm. and trying to kind of keep himself as distant as possible. Right. And then. Then they bring in David Brooks, and when they get David Brooks in, they decide to kind of play each other, play the two against each other, and they they tell Wayne that David told the whole story, even though I don't think he did, and that's when Wayne is like, oh, well, David had more to do with it than I did, and then starts telling all of it, and then they bring it back to David, and they're like, hey, Wayne's telling the whole story, and then David started telling all of it. So, yeah. And they, the, I mean, that makes sense. This is, and this is a lot of interviewing. Yeah. Yeah. But they eventually do. Are any of the interviews recorded? They are. There is yeah. a ton. Really? And you can okay. use whatever you want. But yes. But then you can also get into so much more, too. Because, I mean, there's. Ah, uh, I. And I guess, yeah, you you could just, yeah. I mean, because it sounds to me, it's it's never ending. Like, it's there's oh, no. just so much. There's, there's so many. There's probably, at, and I'm guessing, but I'm going to say two hours of recording yeah. that you can probably use. And mm-hmm. it's just detail after detail after detail of all of this stuff and how it went down and, you know, where this body was and where this body was. And another thing we didn't even, I didn't even dig into a lot of these bodies, which is, I mean, this is the worst part of this whole thing. A lot of these bodies weren't even identified until late 2000, like 2011, 2010. Because they dug them all out of the boat shed, but nobody knew who was who. Right. Oh yeah. Cause over time. Yeah. So yeah. Like Randall Lee Harvey, he was. They they identified his body in October October seventeenth two thousand eight was when 18? they finally identified his body two thousand eight October seventeenth two thousand eight. So how many years after? So he was he was missing he was reported missing March eleventh nineteen seventy one. Yeah. So thirty seven years later. Oh my God. Can you imagine? I mean that's and that's really the saddest part about this whole thing. Is that all of these parents, not all of these parents, but a lot of these parents had to go this long. We're talking 37 years before it's proven that that was actually their kid. Yeah. I mean, you know what that would do to somebody. Um, yeah. We're talking, so Roy Eugene Bunton, 
mm-hmm. um, November 4th, 2011. Mm. So 39 years, 39 wow. years later, apparently his body had been mixed up with Michael Balch and they had thought it was Michael Balch. And then they found out later that Michael was in a different area and that this was actually Eugene, because again, you're, you're digging up kids, right? These are not adults with identification or anything like that. Yeah. They don't have tattoos. These are all 14, 15, 16, 17, you know, teenagers, all yeah. of them. So they're going to be similar. Um, Joseph Lyles, his body wasn't identified till November 11th, 2009. That was February, early February of 1973. So 36 years later. I mean, all these, they're 30-something years later. And it just, I can't imagine how bad these families suffered yeah through all this well to be honest thank god for the lady who for Rhonda. yeah <laughs> for telling I mean, that guy what you're gonna do about it right if that's all it took to get somebody to do something right. about it for crying out loud that little comment is what turned the whole thing around and that was what so billy um Billy Ridinger, right? So we talked about Billy Ridinger being the one that they let go, the one that could have gone to the police. They said if he had gone to the police right then and there, that he would have saved 15 lives. And when the trials were going on for Wayne Henley and David um, Brooks, who both, by the way, got multiple life sentences. I want to say Brooks died in prison. And I think Wayne is still alive, or at least as of the last thing that I saw. Ooh, but I can look it up. When he went to, when Billy Ridinger went to the to the trials, he was actually testifying. But when he testified, he did it with a with a paper bag over his head. That's how traumatized and embarrassed of the situation he was. So I can imagine. You and can they imagine, allowed that? I don't think they would allow that these days. Uh, I don't know, but you can imagine. We've already talked about the trauma he he went through that a reason he wouldn't go to the police. Now he's going through the trauma of not only did I not save 15 lives, but I also went through all that trauma. Mm-hmm. I mean, man. So Elmer Henley. Elmer Wayne Henley Jr. He Jr. got mad. He got mad at one of the reporters that reported a story calling him Elmer Wayne Henley. Because that's his dad's name. Oh, I'm sorry. Elmer Wayne Henley Jr. Let me correct myself. Mm-hmm. Better, he'll get mad at you. Well, um, that's fine. He is uh, 65 years old. He is currently at the Connolly facility. Uh, which is Remember in that? Kennedy, Texas. Yep. With a life sentence, he's eligible for parole in 1980. That was denied. Well, wait, that was Henley? That was Henley. Mm -hmm. So Henley must have gotten the three life sentences, and the other one got David Brooks. So Henley got one. Okay, so he was convicted of one, two, three, four, five, six, murder with malice, afterthought. And he only got one life sentence? Afterthought. 
Um, I mean, it just says life sentence. I don't think it. I don't think it. I've never seen it say more than one. I thought they both had multiple. I thought one. I thought David Brooks had six life sentences and Wayne had three. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, hold on. Let me go look at the other one. Who's what's who's the other one? Uh, David Brooks. David Brooks, David Wayne, or David Earl? Hold on, I got I, it written down. I have um, two incarcerated. This is David Owen. David Owen, that's it. David Owen okay, Brooks. Okay, so um, neither David Brooks's that are incarcerated in Texas are David Owen. Hold on. Uh, David Owen Brooks. Yeah, so he must be dead. He what? He is dead. That's yeah. He died in prison. Okay. In prison. Yeah. Where else okay. would you die if you were in prison? I mean, I mean, I want to, I want to say he had six. Fact check me here, but I want to say he had six life sentences. He wasn't going nowhere. David Owen Brooks, American convicted murderer and accomplice of serial killer Dean Coral, died in Galveston. Brooks died on May twenty eighth, twenty twenty. There you go. Last year. Last year, I do remember that because I—that was my first thought. Was he actually? He actually was alive during COVID. Listen, listen to this, okay? Yep. Brooks died on May twenty eighth, twenty twenty, in a Galveston, Texas hospital while serving out his life sentence. Sixty five years old, he had died from COVID nineteen. Get the hell out of here! I shit you not. <laughs> I do more research. I, that was my first thought when it's when they said 2020. I was like, oh, he experienced COVID. Apparently, he really experienced COVID. It said 65 years old. He had other illnesses, but ultimately died from COVID-19. Well, paperwork's going to get you every time on that one. But yeah, man, that's a crazy one. That's a crazy Isn't end. that crazy to be an accomplice to murdering, mm. what, 30 people at least mm. known? And COVID takes your ass out. I would say if anybody's really a lot more interested in this story, there's that book, The Man with the Candy. It's by Jack Olson. I mean, it's worth a read if you really want to kind of dive into the backstory. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not as much about the murders as it is about kind of the backstory of Dean Coral and even some of the victims where I kind of feel like they may have gotten off in the weeds a little bit as far as fact or fiction, but it, it, it definitely kind of sheds a lot more light on the story. Yeah. There's actually, uh, several books, the man with the candy by Jack Olson. Yep. 1974, the story of the Houston mass murders. That's what I just said. Uh, well, I'm, I was fixing to tell you something. Oh, okay. About the book. I mean, I read the book. You read the whole I, book? I read. I read. Thank you. Yes, I read, I read the whole book. I, I read Kindle. Anyway, um, it is the top of all the... There's actually several books that were written, but it is the top. Yeah. About the case. So. Yep. Interesting. And Very interesting. You had your work cut out for you on this one. Telling you. And we could, like I said, there's so much more. There is so much more. But it's almost irrelevant at this point. And that's pretty much how this ends. Yeah, on to the next. We're done. Yeah, we're done. 
He's the worst serial killer in Houston history. Dean Coro, known as the Candyman, was responsible for the deaths of 30 teenage boys. He was found wearing this striped Catalina brand swimsuit. And finally, investigators told us they received this picture with a possible name of Bobby French. Victims advocate Andy Kahn says the Houston mass murders made headlines around the world. Well, we'll put it this way. Uh, it's still going on in some places out here in the Heights. Only after Henley shot Coral and their crimes were revealed. Back then, you know, sadly, that most of them were just considered runaways. You know, there really wasn't any, you know, effort made to locate. You didn't have groups like Texas Equus Search. I just want people not to forget about this. Dr. Sharon Derrick with the Harris County Forensic Science Center identified seven unknown victims of the Candyman. God, I hope that they're they get, they're found and that they can get some closure. You know, this this boy has got parents, siblings, or somebody. So yeah, that was the only other one I saw. Uh, Mark Stevens got. Uh, yeah, they have. I think they finally identified him through DNA. H-E-N-L-E-Y, Mrs. Henley is the uh, mother. A happy little old boy, usually he's close to his family. He's always loved people. He, he, he tries to take care of his brothers. He didn't want none of them to have to drop out of school. I don't know. He's just, he's just a little 17-year-old boy that was close to his family. That's all I know. Wayne's not that kind of person. Wayne loved too deep and too much. Hilligeist, H-I-L-L-I-G-I-E-S-T. It's Fred Hilligeist and Dorothy Hilligeist. It goes out to him. Our, our search has come to an end. I know that time will not save really right now. I think that she has a greater cross to bear than I have. Her boy is alive. I don't know what his destiny will be after this, but I'm sure that whatever his punishment in himself is more than I don't think anybody could ever ever do to a person than than 
I'm sure every, all these faces of these friends that he lured into this situation will loom before him. But I, I can't, like I said, my, I, I feel sorry for them. I think she's got the heavier cross now. The boys are buried. Why were they buried here? Dean Quarrel decided he wanted to have sex with them. Didn't want to let him go, so he killed him, brought him out here and buried him. This time, I just haven't felt like I was going to be able to hold my sanity much longer. I just think these, I owe these people this much to let them know what's happened to their boys. The words of the police chief offered little consolation to the families of the victims in the mass murders. The chief did say his department and other law enforcement agencies are continuing their investigation. There will be more digging for graves and there will be more grief as additional victims are identified. George Lewis, NBC News, Houston. Based on the two events, uh, we still feel he's a person who kills because he likes to. How would you describe yourself? Quiet, friendly. I work hard. I'm really, I'm really not any different than anybody else. If a junkie can quit being a junkie, why can't I quit being what I was? The, the articles in the house itself, you know, the board with the handcuffs and the tools they had used for the torture, I knew that was not a run-of-the-mill everyday shooting. It started right here at this boat shed. Right over in that corner, there was a mound dirt that was just mounted up just a little bit. That's where the first body was. They wrapped all the bodies in plastic, so some of the bodies were still intact. Some of them, of course, had been there a couple of years, so they were just skeletal remains. We went up with 17 bodies out of there. When I got involved with Dean Coral, it was, uh, it was like going through the looking glass. You know, nothing was real, nothing was right. I was living in a madman's world. Were you a madman? No. You were a sane man in a madman's world? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a boy in a madman's world. It was a, a weird mesh of conflicting feelings because I was scared of him and I, 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 uh, I thought he was sick. But at the same time, I didn't want to displease him. I wanted to please him. I was, I wanted him, you know, to be proud of me. Well, I shot Charles in the head with Dean's pistol. Then Marty Jones, me and Dean choked him and buried him in the boat stall. Instead of picked to be killed, I was picked to be a handyman. I'm not. You're not a serial I'm killer? I'm not a serial killer. We killed a boy by the name of Billy Lawrence. I don't remember how we killed him that we buried him up at Dean's place. And that's pretty bad when you kill so many, you don't remember how you killed them. Well, yeah, no, that's semantics. Without Coral, it wasn't a crime. On my own, there would have been no crime. It's not me. I'm passive. And I think he came to enjoy that power of either giving life or taking it away. I do believe that I, I, I could function out there, that I, I could have a, a positive influence. I don't want to be no psychopath. I don't want to be no killer. I just want to be decent people. I know I'm capable of that. 
in control of myself and my emotions. I shot and killed Johnny DeLong. We choked Mark Scott and Frank Aguirre. Last one I can remember, their name is Homer Garcia. And I shot him in the head and we buried him in Rayburn. Officers from several Houston area police agencies converged on a boat storage shed and began opening the shallow graves. They were led to the site by 17-year-old Elmer Wayne Henley. Henley told police in suburban Pasadena that he had killed a man who boasted of the murders of several young people. During the grave digging operations, Henley called his mother and told her the story on a mobile telephone. Mama. It's Wayne. Yes, this is Mama, baby. Mama? Yeah. I killed Dean. Wayne? Ma'am? Oh, you didn't. Yeah, yes. Oh, God. Where are you? Um, it's all right. It's all right. It's all right. Where are you? Well, I'm out of his warehouse. Where? Out of that warehouse, he keeps. Can I come out there? Yeah, yes. Yeah. No. Is that Clark? She can't. No, you can't come. I'm, I'm with the police, Mama. Henley told police he killed 33-year-old Dean Allen Coral during a party at Coral's house. Henley said Coral had threatened him with a pistol and a knife, trying to force him into unnatural sex acts. Henley told police Coral had bragged about killing several young men and putting their nude bodies in shallow graves in the rutted stall. After further police questioning, Henley said as many as 18 or 19 bodies might be buried in the stall. And Henley said there are other graves on a stretch of beach along the Texas Gulf Coast and at a lake in East Texas. Henley and police traveled to the lakeside to look for the additional graves. A Houston police lieutenant says as many as 25 or 30 murder victims might be involved in the case. He says it's the work of a perverted maniac. Uh, or they use instruments, uh, a rack and so forth for their sex acts. Good evening. Profile a Houston tragedy is only a title. For what you are about to see defies any brief verbal description. It is a look at what regrettably may become the most sordid story in the annals of American crime. Perhaps as many as 30 teenage boys brutally tortured, murdered, and buried in and around the Houston area. At that time, developments were already beginning to piece together, and law enforcement officials were beginning to feel pangs of horror. Their worst fears would be realized. David, this entire story of sadistic homosexual slayings would almost appear to be fiction, scripted with the full intention of shocking readers over and over again. It's that hard to believe. So many lives involved, so many killed over such a long period of time, and all of it going undetected. But it's not fiction. It's very real. A deadly conspiracy now listed as one of the most horrifying crimes in this century. An innocent-looking Pasadena home, but some of the people who went in were carried out in plastic bags. They had been murdered. Death in most cases came after the victims had been subjected to various sex acts and torture. The victims were all boys in the early to mid-teens who allegedly had been lured into a death trap by 17-year-old Elmer Wayne Henley. 
It was Henley who unveiled this secret of mass killings and led police to the graves of the dead. Henley called the police to the home of Dean Coral. He said he killed that Pasadena resident. Henley said the 34-year-old Coral had talked about killing several young men and burying them in this boat storage in South Houston. Henley said he and two other young people were intended victims Wednesday morning. At that time, they had passed out at Coral's house after an all-night party. I woke up and he had he was clamping handcuffs on me. I was laying on my stomach. The other two were on their stomach and they were handcuffed and their feet were tied. I can't remember whether he tied my feet afterwards or they were tied when I woke up. I'd torture him if he'd let me go. To begin with, he wanted to kill me. He was mad because I brought the chick over there. I was going to, the chick wanted to run away from home and I was going to travel with Dean. I thought it was safe. I didn't know no better. Henley said Coral did turn him loose, and then he described what happened next to the others, another young man and a teenage girl. Uh, he let me up and took them into a bedroom and strapped them to the board. Strapped, strapped him on his stomach, spread eagle on the board, and strapped Rhonda beside the board, beside Tim on her back. First he wanted Tim to take Rhonda, but Tim couldn't or he wouldn't or something. And so he wanted me to take her, and he was going to mess with Tim. Henley said at one point, Coral put down his gun. He picked it up, ordered Coral to release the other victims, but he refused. And Henley says he shot Coral repeatedly. Henley's initial story makes it sound as if he were, in effect, a hero. But police suspicions were confirmed the next day. Henley said he had been involved in the murder and burial of some victims found in the dirt floor of this storage shed. For most of Wednesday night, lawmen continued to unearth bodies. All supposedly young boys, early to mid-teens, all had their hands tied, the bodies wrapped in plastic. Lime had been poured over the victims to help decompose the bodies. It did a more than adequate job. Bits and pieces of skeletons were removed time and time again. In some cases, flesh clung to bones like jelly. The stench inside that shed was almost overpowering. Those with weak stomachs stayed out. Just before closing down the digging operations for that night, a lieutenant in the Houston Homicide Division talked about the victims, and he talked about the killers. How would you classify this series of crimes? Just like I said, while ago, hell of a sadistic type of a clown that pull something like this. And you think most of these victims are young boys? I'm pretty reasonably sure they are. The reports that we have, missing persons, are all a bunch of kids, 13, 14, 15 years old. The death side and the graveside itself appears tragic enough, but do you think many of them went under any torture? Well, when you're fooling with a, a nut like this it, that's a pervert, then you can expect most anything. Uh, or they use instruments and uh, a rack and so forth for their sex acts. So the digging operation ceased for that night. Now the public knew eight bodies had been found in this shed, but this was just beginning, and that became evident the following day. Thursday, lawmen returned to the gravesite, shovels again dug into the soil in the 12 by 30 shed. The death count started rising. There was another body, and still another, and another. When the digging was finally completed in this shed, 17 bodies had been recovered. 
According to the owners of the boat storage, Dean Coral had always been prompt in paying his rent on this boat stall, which he had for nearly three years. Recently, he had been politely asking the owners if they didn't have another stall for rent. He said his was getting too crowded. 17 bodies, shocking, terrifying, and yet there were still more to be found. The trail of graves stretched into the piney woods of East Texas near Sam Rayburn Lake, not too far from Lufkin. Henley told Lawman that he helped Coral bury more victims in this area. At this time, 18-year-old David Brooks of Houston was also in custody as a suspect. Henley pointed to one spot and said, there are two bodies here, but only one was uncovered. So Henley said, that means there are two at the other site. After killing a rattlesnake, Lawman and Newsman moved cautiously through the heavy brush to the next location. Again, the shovels dug in, and Henley decided to start talking again also. Now, these just some boys that he picked up, or I helped him get, rather. And he raped them, ended up killing them, brought them down here and buried them. And I helped him pick them. Now, David Brooks is another person who has been named. Now, what role did he play in all of this? Same as mine. The digging at the second spot produced only one more body before Lawman decided to call a halt for the night. They were to return the next morning, and they would uncover two more victims. That meant one Henley didn't know about. In other words, how many others could have been killed before Henley or Brooks became a part of all of this? It was possible, Henley said, that Coral had other young men working for him in the past, using them to procure boys for his sexual fantasies, using them to pimp for him, and then later killing them just as he started to murder Henley. There could be dozens of other bodies, and the only man who could possibly tell the entire grisly story was Dean Coral, and he was dead. Yesterday, the trail of graves took Lawman and Newsman to the southeast of Houston. Henley and Brooks said there were more bodies buried along the Gulf of Mexico. By now, the scene was becoming all too familiar. Shovels digging into dirt and yielding bodies. Heavy equipment was called in to assist in the recovery operations. Since there were few landmarks along the beach, Henley was having some trouble recalling the graves, but his directions did uncover more human remains. The white of lime mixed with the red of blood, bones, bits of flesh, again the indescribable smell of a decayed human body. The operations moved down the beach. At one point it stopped beside this camper. A Beaumont family out to spend a quiet day along the Gulf learned that they were within 10 feet of another victim. As the digging started and revealed the remains of still another body, the family packed up their camper. Yes, they had heard about the mass killings, but to learn that they were at the same spot where a teenage boy had been buried under two feet of sand, the Beaumont couple and their son headed for home. Before Henley and Brooks were returned to jail, Henley wanted to talk to reporters. He had told me earlier that the stories he read in the newspapers contained lies. Henley said he wanted to clear up and correct things, like his full name, and what happened to that girl at Carl's house Tuesday night and Wednesday morning? And a couple of other things most important to him. And when that boy turned himself in, I had not yet made a statement. I didn't make a statement until after he made his. So I didn't implicate him. He hung himself. That's all I want to say. I never said there were 30 people. I said 24. Name's Junior, not Elmer Wayne Henley. Well, get your picture. Elmer Wayne Henley Jr., a young man who says now that he can sleep and live since this nightmare is out in the open.